Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Whitney Bauman. He's a professor at Florida International University. Uh, We're talking about um, religious studies as they apply to science and as they overlap with science and ecology. So, Whitney, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. If you would, tell me about your work, please. Yeah, so my work is uh, generally within the field of religion and science and also religion and ecology, which there are fields <laughs> as such that are, that are, you know, about from the 1960s forward um, in, the, in the Western universities, at least. And basically what I focus on is how sort of religious ideas and philosophical ideas shape human earth interaction and also how science has shaped religions throughout history and how religions have also shaped scientific ideas. In a nutshell, that's my that's my overview work. I focus within that on sort of what I see as developing a critical planetary perspective. So understanding ourselves as humans among other humans in a planetary community, rather than first and foremost, Christian or American or this sort of thing. We are human beings um, on the planet Earth. And we need both uh, religious and scientific insights, as well as insights from <laughs> the humanities and social sciences in order to figure out what that means. So what are some examples of scientists um, affecting nature or ecology or people's thoughts about it? Okay. So one of the, one of the clear examples uh, sort of historically that's used is the con is sort of this idea of conflict between religion and science, which of course is not the one that I want to, to land upon, but this is sort of like the way in which evolutionary theories have challenged understanding of what it means to be human in the world and how that's come into conflict with some, some more uh, traditional religious beliefs, especially ones let's say in the monotheistic strand that see humans as created special, right? And humans as created by God in the special sort of creation. And then evolutionary theory, of course, comes along and says, hey, we're all part of this uh, evolutionary soup and we're actually just emerging out of other creatures. And so this means, for instance, that 
you know, um, evolutionary theory suggests that, that there's nothing permanent to the forms of life that we see on the planet. So that the idea that there could be some sort of creation, right. That was, <laughs> that was there from the beginning is, is, is challenged by this. And the idea that, that humans are somehow, um, uh, special in the universe is also challenged by this. It doesn't mean that we're demoted to irrelevance. It just means that we are emergent from the rest of the planetary community and, you know, humans have, have emerged out of and, Quite possibly, there will be a post-human uh, planet at some point through through processes of evolution. Um, hopefully, not through our own destruction. Well, we haven't seen really any changes or speciation in the time we've been here. So, I guess there's you know, there's no it's a theory, but there's no proof that we're going to become post-human and what that'll look like. Right, right. We haven't I mean, seen it yet. It is a theory, but theory that is, I would say, the best view, right? Theory just means like a view of the world. And I would say that we need the scientific um, understandings of the world in order to have that view, as well as as well as well uh, insights from religions and, and even new philosophies and religious traditions. I guess my my point would be that, you know, in a sort of we we if you if you follow the story of cosmology of Western cosmology and and evolutionary theory, we live in an expanding universe that's been expanding for 13.7 billion years, and a, and a, and on a planet that's been evolving for 4.5 billion years. So it seems and we also we also live in a world where we can only see five percent of visible reality. Um, the other 95 percent is dark energy and dark matter. So we base our our all of our assumptions, including the scientific ones, on a very small portion. Of, of what we can see in our own experience in our, in our short times on the planet. However, I think that the views that take into account more perspectives, not just the human, provide us with a better understanding of the, of the planetary community that we're a part of. Well, what does that perspective look like? What do you mean? So, for instance, I mean, we share, uh, we share most of our DNA with other life on the planet. And from a, from a planetary perspective, I would say that if we are emergent out of the process of evolution, then we're we're in sort of deep kinship with the rest of the natural world, right? That we do have ethical and and moral sort of duties to uh, to not create a, a world that's just for human beings or just for some human beings, right? Because we live also in a very economically unjust world, <laughs> in which there are the haves and the have-nots, so on and so forth. And not everyone has sort of polluted the world through fossil fuels and, and these sorts of things equally, right? So. I would say that we we are rather than sort of being managers of the planet, a stewardship tradition that you might find in, in Judaism and Islam and Christianity, but we're much more in sort of kinship with the planet, a relational understanding of humans and the rest of the natural world that you might find in some Eastern traditions or or indigenous traditions, for instance. Do Eastern traditions tend to seem to take care of the planet and have a more ecological view than others? Or are they no, just different same. religions and they, they don't seem to prefer humans as well? Yeah, and this is, you know, history exceptionalism, I think, runs deep. Uh, I mean, sorry, human exceptionalism, I think, runs deep. And there, it's not as if, you know, India is, is unpolluted or China is unpolluted, right? But, but it, it does suggest a different way of understanding the world. If we begin to really take into um, consideration our interrelatedness with the rest of the natural world, then we come up with, uh, with different ways of human-Earth relations. And, and, of course, we still exist in a world that is... Uh, that is grounded in, in sort of neoliberalism and, and sort of the ideas of individualism uh, globalized now through economics and these sorts of things. So it'll take us, I mean, a, a while to switch these values around and to, and to find new ways of being with each other and with the rest of the natural world. Well, what do you mean? What does that look like? What, what would be the, uh, a different way of looking at it? Well, I mean, for instance... We don't have to. So let's talk about the the sort of you know recent pandemic, current pandemic, 
and sort of what happened during the the, the first year that for a lot of people, um, if you were like me, everything sort of slowed down, right, <laughs> a little bit. Um, there wasn't as much um, fossil fuel travel and fossil fuel consumption, and people started to notice things different because you weren't rushing around at this sort of fossil fuel pace um, by which to by which you have to live your lives, right? I think that this fossil fuel pace sort of outstrips our own bodies, right? We have all sorts of anxiety and 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 medical problems from being so stressed out all the time. But it also outstrips the carrying capacity of the planet, the, the, the ability for the planet to, to, to sort of um, every spring, right, regenerate itself. And so I think that like people began to slow down and people began to do more bird watching and more gardening and even, even sourdough baking, right? I mean, these are little things, but uh, people begin to notice the bird song and, and sort of the brightness of the, of the, of the night sky during this pandemic time. So I, I think this, these are just little hints, right? I, I can't, I couldn't be able to tell you what the, a new world we're going to look like because I think there will be different different versions of that from from multiple perspectives around the planet. Um, but but what I can say is that the sort of the sort of fossil fueled um, world that we live in now just doesn't seem to be working for most people and for the rest of the natural world. So where do you think we're heading versus where we should head? What's going to happen? You think of the next twenty to fifty years? I mean, I you know <laughs> your guess is as good as any, and I mean the. You know, the, the predictions for the United Nations environmental program every year that come out on the intergovern- intergovernmental panel on climate change, right, have better and worse scenarios in terms of what is, what's possible. But I think part of this is, is sort of recognizing that we actually live in a in a in an uncertain sort of <laughs> we live in uncertain times. Right. And I would say I would say um, apocalyptic, not in that the world is going to be destroyed or anything like that. But apocalypse just needs an unveiling, right? That there's something wrong with with the way that we've been living in the world and that something new needs to emerge, right? And of course, I find promise in all the all the sort of green technologies and these sorts of things. But I also don't think that it's just going to be a technological fix. We have to also change our mindsets and, our, and the way that we relate to the rest of the natural world, I think, for for these things to take hold. I mean, We've known that we've known the science around climate stuff for you know almost 50 years now. We've had environmental technologies to do different things, but yet we still don't do them, right? And I think this has to do with the deep affects and, and emotions and desires that have been built up um, around this idea of human exceptionalism and humans being sort of above the rest of the natural world. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So how does religion fit into this? Do you study it or, you know, how does it play a role? Yeah, so I studied, uh, I mean, obviously no one person can study all the different traditions equally, but within the my own field, I've done most of my work in terms of how Christian monotheism has shaped ideas about economics and the environment and, and sort of also, and also scientific ideas. Um, and so, you know, I focus mostly on monotheisms in general because I believe that it's the monotheisms that have been sort of uh, taken in and adopted by the economics and science that has become global. Okay. So what does religion say except for human exceptionalism 
what do these monotheistic religions uh, essentially tell people to do? And does that conflict with uh, economic realities? Well, it depends, right? Because there's so many different interpretations, right? Religion is always interpreted, even at its like its base root in Latin is to to reread, right? Or to tie back together, right? So it's this constantly, it's a constant process of reattuning to the worlds around us, right? If you think about, for instance, if you think about, if you want to think about um, sort of ethical reattunements, right? Moses or Buddha or or Jesus are are coming out of the world because there were some unjust things being done in the world and asking for a new world, right? Or if you think about sort of aesthetic reattunements, right? There need there needs to be a new planet in which there is no a new creation in which there is no injustice, no male or female, no no Jew or Gentile, so on and so forth, right? So there's all these religions at at at, at some point are calling for more just relationships, and I would say that this this has to include because we are evolutionary creatures, it has to include the rest of the natural world. What what kind of relationships or what we have with other creatures? What are you envisioning? Well, I mean, so you know, there's a whole spectrum of things that we could think about. Uh, You know, some people are sort of in the deep ecology realm, think that, you know, we should, we should let animals be animals, right? Other people, um, such as, you know, some of the environmental philosophers I follow from places like Australia talk about having animal familiars, right? So they're not pets, and they're not economic animals, but we coexist together, right? (laughs) Um, You have sheep that you allow to graze, and then you can love the sheep and and sort of have a relationship with that sheep and and use you know its wool and so on and so forth so there i think there's i think there's a lot of little instances of this um popping up um in many places in urban areas where people are beginning to have things like chickens and these sorts of things right and and it's not it's not a sort of like going back to the land i don't think that that's possible for most people right that's a lot that costs a, that takes a lot of land and a lot of economic power if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. But it is a way to find ourselves living together with other animals. And, and I think there, there are, uh, there are better and worse examples of this. I mean, right in, in India, for instance, if you're walking around Delhi, you'll see, um, you'll see monkeys that are, just, they're free. They're not in cages or anything like this, or you'll, you'll find elephants that are carrying loads from one side of the city to the other by themselves, right? Because they know the way, right? And they're, they're sort of economic helpers with their, with the, the people that take care of them or the cows that are able to run around free. So I think there's examples of this, but yeah, the, what's, what, what I, what I do know is that the sort of factory farm approach to animals, which treats them like commodities for food and, and other, and other industrial uses, right. Is, is, is also causing a lot of ecological degradation in the world, not to mention injustice towards peoples and other animals. So do you think that this would, uh, you know, I guess better stewardship over animals and interacting with them would lead to better relationships amongst people? I mean, people treat each other like commodities all the time too. That's correct. And so there's, you know, philosophical traditions going back to actually the vegetarianism found in Buddhism, even that suggests that the way that we treat and also Immanuel Kant, one of the famous Western philosophers in the Western canon of philosophy, that say, you know, the, the reason we, we have to treat other animals uh, well, because if not, we're spreading violence into the world that will also affect humans, right? Or if the way that we treat animals will also be reflected in our human-human relationship. So, so there's a certain amount of, I would guess, base respect for the process of life that gets lost when we treat humans other animals in the earth as a as a mere commodity for our own ends so again what, what would be your suggestions what changes could be made and would they take on you know i mean would they be accepted by a vast group of people or do you think that any change is going to be very small and ephemeral and just blocked 
by the the large mass of humanity and its desires right now? Well, I mean, I don't know. I think that, you know, we're here because of a long line of constructed ways of thinking about the world and acting in the world. And so I think that we we also have the capacity to respond, to be responsible means the, the ability to respond um, that then gets evolved to this complex level where we can choose between responses. Um, and we humans can do that, not all humans, but most of them. Um, and some animals can do it, not all of them, but some other higher primates probably can do that too. But I think that we do have a responsibility to try to, to shift things, right? And I don't know exactly what is going to emerge, but I do know that there's two ways of <laughs> organizing on a planetary scale that don't seem to work. And one of those is a return to localism and nationalism, right? The, the sort of things that we see going around in, uh, in some governments in the world, including the United States, right? Let's go back to our own borders and police those borders and, and sort of retract from this planetary community. On the other side of that is people that are like, no, we need the continuation of neoliberal globalization with social and environmental things tacked onto it. Well, this doesn't also work for a lot of local peoples. That's, it's led to impoverishment um, of the environment and humanity. And so maybe a third way, right? <laughs> a third way between sort of localism and, and nationalism and, and this continue of neoliberal globalization is possible. And um, I don't, you know, there's the World Economic Forum, there's the World Sustainability Forum, there's all these organizations that are trying to look at how we might do this uh, without falling into to either of those traps. So I don't, I, the answer is I don't think there is an answer yet, but that doesn't mean we can't keep searching for it and can't keep searching for other solutions, right? So somebody like um, Ursula Le Guin, the, the late sort of speculative fiction writer, said towards the end of her life, what we need more right now are more people writing speculative fiction to have ideas about the future that are not just the same past projected onto the future. So we, we need to have like a lot of different ways of, of, of trying to understand uh, uh, how we might become in better relationships with the rest of the natural world. Uh, is there anything that you do to try to be in a better relationship with the natural world? I mean, I do. It's, uh, you know, I mean, for one, I vote. <laughs> this is very important um, because it's in the U.S. There's a there's a little test that you can do called the ecological footprint essay. It's um, housed by this organization called Redefining Progress. It's working on exactly that, thinking about how progress might include the rest of the natural world and things like social equity and these sorts of things and not just sort of the GDP. But you, you basically answer all these questions and it comes back to you. And it says, if everyone lived as you live, we would need seven planets for the, for the whole or for the, in order to survive, right? Um, and it tells you sort of at what point in the year that you've already overstripped your, your carrying capacity for the planet, right? If everybody was living that way. And so, so I, I mean, we can do these little things like I'm a vegetarian. Um, uh, I have a, I try to um, not drive very much except for when I have to, because I live in a, a, a city, at least Miami. Um, when I'm in Miami, I have to drive because the public transportation just isn't there. Right. Um, and sort of like the infrastructure that we've built in the U.S. centered around roads and cars and stuff needs to shift to more public transportation, for instance. Maybe we need to put more money into like green technologies around travel and these sorts of things. It's, it's things that we all know. It's just how do we get the political will behind those options to where they become persuasive and sort of what do we gain by living in the world a different way? Maybe we gain a better, uh, a cleaner environment. Maybe we gain... Um, a less stressful lifestyle where we're not just running around all the time in our cars, like isolated from everybody else, you know, this sort of, and I think that, you know, I live part of my, part of the year in Europe as well in Berlin and the, the social systems there have, have done a lot, I think, to help promote a, a, what I would say a, a more flourishing lifestyle for the planetary community, such as 
Um, I think healthcare is a big one, right? Education is a big one. And, and also environmental protections. These things are not on the voting block every time there's an election there. On the, on the left and on the right, people want to maintain um, cheap healthcare, cheap um, education, and environmental wellness. Um, why? Because it leads to a better quality of life for, uh, for everyone involved. Um, so I think, I think even with, you know, um, even with some of these changes, right? If you think about it the way that in the 1960s, when all the, the civil rights movement started in the environmental movement, it was right after World War II and the GI Bill, which, which sent a lot of people to college for the first time for free and said, hey, there are things wrong with this world, right? <laughs> and then when you got out of college, you didn't have to go straight to work because your healthcare and your, um, your healthcare didn't depend on it. Um, you could still, there was still relatively affordable healthcare. <laughs> there, was an, there was enough wealth or at least security net where people weren't going to become homeless like they do at the rate today. And so you had the, the energy then to make movements, the civil rights movement, the, the queer liberation movement, the environmental movement, all these things, the feminist movement, all these things come out of a certain level of of protections where we have the space to think creatively about new ways of becoming. And those movements have all changed the world that we live in. Understood. Well, Whitney, what's the best place for people to find out more about your work and your thoughts? Where can they go? Oh, sure. So um, there, uh, if you go my faculty website on at FIU, www.fiu.edu, um, I'm in the religious studies department there. So if you just do a, a search for Whitney Bauman and FIU, then you'll find my faculty page. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Whitney, thank you for coming on the podcast. And, you know, I know it's the ideas that you have. Uh, well, I try to be an optimist about them, but I don't know how the world's doesn't seem like he's doing good so far. But uh, hopefully some of these ideas will come to pass and be adopted by more people than they are now. Well, I mean, I, it's hard to be optimistic and, you know, I'm not in any way naively optimistic, but I have to hope I have to hold on to some sort of hope in order not to just throw up my hands. Right. And so and I think, you know, hope is exactly what we can have in the face of uncertainty. If, if there's a certain future, there's no need to hope and there's no need to have faith that things can change. But if the, if we live in an uncertain world, then we have to, we have to have hope and faith and the will to move towards certain ways of becoming over others, right? It gives us again, choice and the, and the type of worlds that we want to help co-create with other humans and with the rest of the natural world. So that's, that's at least, okay. um, that's at least how I try to get out of bed every day. <laughs> yeah. No, excellent. Well, very good, Whitney. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.